0: This is Out of the Basement, a podcast dedicated to radiation medicine.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Jason Beckta crawling at you out of the basement for the first solo time in 2023 after I transitioned practices from the great state of New York to the great state of Vermont, and I am now with the University of Vermont and working at Rutland Regional Medical Center in somewhat of a unicorn setup. I will explore that topic at a future time, perhaps. But what I learned was that it is very hard to move a young family in the wintertime while maintaining busy clinical practices and yada, yada, yada. I figured the podcast uh, was one of the things that I could jettison temporarily to regain at least a little bit of sleep. So hopefully as things normalize around here, I can get back up to speed with this. But on that note, that was part of the reason I did not get to go to Acro this year, which I really wanted to do. And it really seemed like an excellent conference. And next year is my, is my goal. I always say that, but I mean it. Down at Acro in the lovely, lovely 85 degree Florida weather, there was a live episode of The Accelerators. And just to, to take a step back and really appreciate how things have changed, I guess, globally, but specifically in radiation oncology, to have especially like Acro with a formal sort of relationship with these independent, I guess media, we'll say it like the independent media projects of things like Quadshot and The Accelerators is, is really great. And then to have the foresight and the interest and the bandwidth to set up something like a live podcast episode was it was really nice to see the it made my fomo even harder because that was something that i didn't really expect to see in in radiation oncology, but that was really nice and so my hats off to whoever who whoever invented the word acropolis where did that come from is that is that Brian Lally? i don't i don't know but that i love every the branding about that great job guys so the accelerators did a live episode at a bar. I don't know which bar. I don't know if it was in the conference center. I want to, I got to ask Matt about that more, but anyway, so it was discussing the salient issues of the day, which as always salient issue of every day and involves the workforce of radiation, and things around it. And in that discussion, Matt had asked Dr. Emma Fields, what she felt was the catalyst between our specialty dropping so far in competitiveness and she concretely answered that it was the what we all call in uh, loving terms and endearing terms the ABR debacle of 2018 and they wanted to talk about various things of, of that nature but when listening to this i realized that well i know exactly what she meant and what we reference when we talk about that that Time passes, can't stop it no matter how much I try. And we are about one full residency cycle out from when that happened. So what I mean by that is the, a lot of things change culturally, institutionally, in the zeitgeist, and the, the debacle, as it were, the, exam, the higher exam failure rates of 2018 was now a, a full residency cohort cycle in the past meaning that five years have gone by. And so I don't even know if the kids who are graduating this this year were in residency when that happened. I think they might have been interns, but I haven't, clearly I didn't go back and math this out beforehand because I prepare so much, so well, math is hard. But anyway, part of something that I get really frustrated with in medicine in general, this is not just a, a radiation oncology issue, but in medicine in general is the information asymmetry in that this is a very complex, highly regulated profession we all work in, and most all of the time upfront in school and residency is centered on learning that pesky thing of how to be a doctor the the medicine part of it now unfortunately, at least again, I don't know if this has changed it's been a few years since I've been out of med school, we'll put it like that, but there's no kind of space in the curriculum to teach other stuff, meaning the business of medicine, the business or the the you know, how to interact with people, the social aspect of things. There's a lot of intangibles that have historically been looked down upon as soft skills or as not becoming of a doctor, you know, we're talking about specifically finances and economics. And I, I really, fr- that frustrates me and that I am worried. I guess it's not really a worry, but that while many of us, if I say the ABR debacle or the 2018 exams or however you want to phrase it, Well, many of us do know what that is. Many, many more and increasingly more don't, and especially a medical student won't know what that is. And there's really no singular sort of source that you can easily come to have an understanding of the seminal events in our field. So while there's Student Doctor Network, there's Twitter, there's publications, there's all these formal and informal collections of things, there isn't a unifying story, as it were, of radiation oncology. There is no history channel of of radiation oncology. And if we're going to continue to have informed conversations about this, we all need to be on the same page. And so what I'm going to try to do is summarize some of the the bigger events and also learn more myself, the, well, there's a lot of other things that have gone on that led us to our current situation that I, for myself, for my own knowledge and, and benefit, try to learn. And so I'm going to try to summarize all these things up for all of us to have an informed conversation. When she mentioned. The ABR debacle, I don't don't want to put words in Dr. Field's mouth. I don't don't think she said that. But when she mentioned the exam issues of 2018, what what is that? I'm going to try to take a high-level view of how radiation oncologists become board certified, how that compares to other specialties in medicine in America, and then specifically what happened in 2018 and what happened subsequently. So people who know me, or at least are forced to speak with me, regularly will often hear me say in my best Matthew McConaughey impression time is a flight circle and that is an awful one but I'm going to leave it in I'm not going to edit that out that's from uh, true detective season one talking about basically how everything that has happened is going to happen again and I think radiation oncology board certification discussions is definitely one of those things you can go back the red goes back to a uh, 1975 and you can go back into uh, JACR and stuff, and you can. People have been argued about this since, uh, man. I think it was you could get board certified in therapeutic radiology. Uh, I think that was nineteen thirty six. I haven't looked at it in a bit, but <clears throat> yeah, people have been fighting about this forever. But as uh, many of us listening to this know, because I I don't suspect that there's a lot of non radiation oncologists listening to me, but the board certification process for us is four exams. Traditionally, it's talked about three, but it is four distinct exams. So we have a radiation biology, a radiation physics, a clinical radiation oncology, and those all three are written exams, and then the oral exam or the certifying exams, which is taken the year after we graduate residency. Usually some people wait or or whatnot, but (laughs) the main point being you can't take it while you're a resident. And so that kind of drastically differs from a lot of other specialties so i would say the majority i haven't personally crunched the numbers on it but i would say the majority of specialties in america they're have a single written exam and i guess fellowship too so the upfront specialty or the subspecialty fellowships will have a single written exam usually done at the end of residency i would say that's the norm the surgeons still have an oral exam but so oral examinations used to be much more common historically And there's been a lot of issues with them kind of in terms of biases and, and other problems. So most of medicine did away with oral exams, the surgeons being the outliers there. And I have really tried to find just like for certain that this is true, but I don't think anyone else has a basic science exam. So really, if someone knows otherwise, please let me know. But... That all together, the four exams, the oral component, the basic science exams, that really makes us unique in many ways. And I <laughs> won't explore that or editorialize on that further, but that's just the, the setting. In that setting, the, the sequence is, or it used to be, so with the pandemic, this has changed, and I took it during in the first wave of of changes. So I, I honestly don't even know what the current schedule is if it's settled in. I think it's now three times a year for some of these, but doesn't matter. Back in the day, it was, uh, and I should say by back in the day, this change, they used to do all three. So it used to be rad biophysics and clinical oncology Written all done in one go. That was, I think that changed in the early 2000s, like by 2002, 2003. But so for at least the last 20 years, historically, you did the radiation biology and physics written exams in the summer, in between your PGY four and your PGY five years. And then it was usually in July, and then you would do your clinical written at the end of your PGY five year. So with graduation, also usually in July, and then the written, or sorry, the oral exam would be done in the spring of your first year of being in an attending, first full year, if you chose to take it then, because it's also, it's not a, not a requirement as long as you did the orals within the first five years, or as, I don't know why I used the past tense there, still a thing as far as I know, but that that was the flow. And there was always a lot of like consternation programs, at least among the, the ones that I know of, where we have the usual research year. So there was a publication, I think the average is nine months. We always just say it's like a research year, but not everyone has a research year. But so oftentimes the PGY4 year is spent at least partially or completely on elective. And usually a whole big chunk of that towards the end was spent on studying for radiation biology and physics and taking that before returning to the final year of full-time clinical practice or residency training, whatever. The 2018 is, is special because of the abnormally high failure rate. So what I, I've thought about a lot of, of how best to talk about this for those who don't know. So I, I think I'll just start with kind of a timeline or go with a timeline. So there is a very interesting paper, uh, an editorial published in PRO by Dr. Amder and Dr. Lee called Thoughts on the American Board of Radiology Examinations and the Resident Experience in Radiation Oncology. And... This is, the timing is important to note here because this came out actually, it was published online in March of 2018, but the official publication date is September of 2018. And why that's important is that it was written and put out into the world before the exams of 2018 and not after, but the official publication date makes it seem like it was in response, but it was not. It predates it. What I thought would be the most helpful for all of this is to actually have transcriptions of the papers themselves. I'm going to reference a couple of papers and letters here and stuff, because a common theme in everywhere is to just read headlines and tweets and responses and not the actual articles themselves. By making this an audio transcript, I am forcing everyone to read the paper in pieces with me. So... This, the intent of this paper is that Dr. Amber and Dr. Lee feel like the board examinations had been increasing in difficulty.
2: Our argument that the ABR board certification examinations are becoming more difficult depends on comparing standardized tests that all radiation oncology residents take before, during, and after their training. The USMLE Step 1 and 2 examinations are reliable indicators of medical knowledge and test-taking ability. They are designed as criterion referenced and are not normatively scored. Crucially, scores on these tests have been demonstrated to predict success in board certification for a number of disciplines. Mean step one and two scores increased every reported year between 2005 and 2016, with a linear regression best fit line analysis confirming a strong positive trend of better results in more recent years, P less than 0.005. The magnitude of improvement in both step groups was large, approximately one standard deviation, 20 points. In contrast, there was no substantial improvement in the first-time pass rate over time in any section of the qualification examination or in the certification examination. In fact, there was a trend toward lower pass rates in recent years for the biology examination, P equals 0.07. If the difficulty of the ABR tests is constant, then one would expect an improvement in pass rates because the radiation oncology resident pool is enriched with residents who perform well on standardized tests
1: they have a table in the paper where they basically show what they just described there of uh, from 05 to 2016 and the step 1 and step 2 scores in comparison to the clinical physics biology and the oral exam and historically the written Clinical exams had a pass rate of around 90 to 95. The written physics was about 85 to 90, and the rad bio was about, you know, it kind of fluctuates, but also 85 90. Historically, they hovered around that 90% first time test taker pass rate. And so that's what the, the table shows. And then they do go on to discuss the limitations of, of this argument in their editorial.
2: There are reasons to question our first proposition that the ABR tests are becoming more difficult. USMLE examination scores may not reflect study habits and test-taking skills of radiation oncology residents, and it is true that the USMLE tests are not designed to predict success in GME. It is important to re-emphasise, however, that USMLE test scores have predicted for board certification success in other disciplines, paediatrics, neurosurgery and emergency medicine, and there is no reason to believe radiation oncology would be different. The argument that ABR examination difficulty has remained constant rests on the Angoff method, a widely used criterion-referenced method to determine the passing percentage for a test. A technical critique of the Angoff method is beyond the scope of this paper. The bottom line, however, is that examination difficulty is not a factor that can be quantified.
1: The one thing that comes up a lot is this Angoff method, and we get really used to in medical school or even before medical school in the process of, well, I always think about the, the USMLE. So in USMLE question writing, we all probably remember the uh, experimental questions. And so the way they would vet a question is sneak new questions into our step exams, and they would evaluate its performance And it wouldn't count for our scores at that point, but that way the test writers could have a sense of, is this a good question or not? And we don't do this in the ABR exams the Angoff method is what they use instead. And so each question is basically, I can't remember, I I'd want to say it was 10 people, but there's a, so they, they employ a, I think it's the title is really like a, a psychometrician. It's like a PhD. I, there's a guy, um, like a single guy who, who does this and that's his literal job. And so they have a guy who specializes in psychometrics and they, they write these questions and then work with him. And then the Angoff method is when each question is vetted by this cadre of people. And it's supposed to be clinicians, radiation biologists, physicists, and they are asked the question, would a minimally competent radiation oncology resident be able to answer this question? And then they all vote. And so it's a very interesting sort of Process that is outside of our experience previously, but yeah. So the the USMLE and I think the MCAT does that too. I don't even remember anymore. But whereas other tests, other standardized tests, will vet their questions with the study population, as it were. This is done by a bunch of volunteers who are, you know, I would imagine at least mid to later career people from each aspect of these exams voting on what a Minimally competent resident get this question, and then the results of that voting is, as far as I can tell, because again, this is a pretty black box process, the results of those votings are then tabulated together, and then that becomes like the passing score. I am intentionally not being very detailed here because it is just not entirely clear to me about this process because it is really a black box. So I would encourage people to go read about the Ankoff method, but the key point being that it's just people voting on, would a minimally competent resident be able to get this question right? So then the editorial concludes with the following.
2: At present, in our opinion, almost all senior residents in good standing in ACGME-accredited programs possess the knowledge required of a competent clinician. In our view... A failure rate of about 10% is too high for any examination section, and the chance that a given resident will fail at least one of the four examinations is substantially higher, summary data not available from the ABR or ACGME. If we accept the proposition that ABR exams are becoming more difficult to pass, why might this be so? One plausible explanation is that the ABR feels that it must maintain an approximate 10% failure rate to fulfil its mission of maintaining public trust. Another possible explanation is that examinations are becoming more difficult because experts have consciously or unconsciously raised the threshold of competence that is central to the Angoff process. These two authors have participated in the Angoff procedure at the ABR and we believe it is at least plausible that experts may feel that the bar should be raised as the quality of diplomats increases. What is clear is that many programs now use USMLE step scores as the major filter for resident selection, and program faculty and residents are now spending a large amount of time, money, and cognitive focus preparing to pass ABR examinations.
1: So they hit on a very important point here, which is that People are fallible we We all have our own conscious or unconscious beliefs and biases, which is just obviously so much of the conversation just in general. but specifically, in this case, how people perceive the specialty, the performance of the people they are training and working with, and that is subject to change over time and in the twenty years of roughly two thousand to to 2020 give or take you know there really was just this sense that radiation oncology was incredible that the people who are in it are some of the the best and the brightest and that become a self not only just a self-fulfilling pers- uh, prophecy which would be a good thing in general but you know you just start that starts to seep in and that starts to seep into how you perceive everything and the editorial, and I've I've heard this concern raised elsewhere, but the editorial raises the question of: all right, if if everyone is aware of how competitive radiation oncology is, and the caliber of the people that are applying and matching, isn't it at least conceivable that the angoff process that 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 could be, for lack of a better term, contaminated by that belief, and that it would change how somebody would vote if a question should be answered correctly by a minimally competent resident and that is a you know obviously i do a full disclosure I, I do think that's the case but the fact of the matter is that it could not you know i could totally be wrong the angoff process could be better you know personally i'm biased towards thinking the usmle method of testing out the questions is the way to go but that's might not be feasible in a specialty as small as ours so there isn't things like the usmle can get away from or with that is that you have tens of thousands of kids taking it every year. You can pretty quickly reach a huge sample size to test these questions out, whereas for radiation oncology, there's about 200 residents every year, and it might not just be feasible. There's other ways around it, but the the fact of the matter is it's just not as easy to do that here. The Angoff method might be the best way to go. I honestly don't know, and I don't think anyone else knows either. Part of that being we haven't really—we don't see it, so it's not— it can't be something that's objectively measured, at least as it pertains to radiation oncology board exams. But whatever, that's that's the so to set that up again. So that one came out online March 2018, and then they the the board exams were proceeded as normal in the summer. And so the then then the world exploded, where basically people started getting their scores back, and it seemed like there was an abnormally high failure rate. And so I remember this where. There's just kind of these rumblings that started verbally amongst the residents about these rumors. And then you, you know, the student doctor networks, whenever I say SDN, that's the student doctor network, uh, radiation college forums, SDN just exploded. And it's, I think it's a 19 page thread from that time of people just furious. And obviously these are very high stakes exams and a stressful period in a doctor's life, because this is right at the end of our training, and these were, again, going back to people who had been told that they were the best best, almost done with this huge long training path, and now an abnormally high level of failure. And so there's a lot of kind of turmoil and, and stuff about this. And sure enough, once the actual numbers came out, the pass rate for biology was only seventy four percent. And the pass rate for physics was only seventy-one percent. And I've tried to, so I've heard a lot of things. Obviously, in the, the people I know, and and it's really not even that hard. We're a small, especially. It's easy to know everyone. But I was around a lot of the the people who had been involved in this, and have talked to people who who have been quote unquote, inside the ABR, inside Astro, and, and, and I've heard many different things. The estimation is that, so if there's about a 30% failure rate for each exam, that you can't assume it was one-to-one, meaning that each, if somebody failed physics, they also failed rad bio. So there were some people who failed physics but not rad bio, some people who failed rad bio but not physics, and the estimation was that there was upwards of 40 or 50% of somebody failed something in, in combined. That number, I don't believe, has ever been confirmed, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong on that. That's what I remember, that's something you can find on a student doctor. People closer to the ABR didn't think that was accurate when I asked them. This was now five years ago when I've had these conversations. But the So, so that's an estimate that's out there, but the fact remains that there was a, about a 30% failure rate for each, which was unheard of. So that had never been seen before, and that qua- caused... A lot of turmoil to put it mildly. Amidst the Chaos, Aero, which is the Association of Residents in Radio which is the resident arm of Astro, took complaints or conversations or whatnot, and they drafted a very nice letter, in my opinion, we'll put it like that, a very beautiful letter that was the official communication
2: from Aero on behalf of residents to The ABR. Initial board certification in radiation oncology requires successful completion of three written initial certification qualifying examinations administered by the American Board of Radiology in Medical Physics, Radiation and Cancer Biology, and Clinical Radiation Oncology before achieving eligibility to take the oral certifying examination. In 2018, 29% and 26% of first-time radiation oncology resident examinees failed the physics and radiation biology qualifying examinations respectively, representing statistically significant deviations from the mean pass rates between 2005 and 2017. Proposed explanations by stakeholder organizations have attributed these results to a lack of clarity regarding up-to-date reference study sources and heterogeneity of teaching standards across programs or that the question writers consciously or unconsciously raise the threshold of competence that is central to the Angoff process. Still others placed the blame on the examinees, hypothesizing a failure to recognize that the ABR examinations are challenging and require a substantial effort devoted to learning the material, or even that trends in the quality of residents accepted for training have been drifting slightly downward. What is Arrow referencing there of
1: the the drifting slightly downward. That is the infamous, now infamous, editorial that was published by the leadership of the ABR, of the Radonk side of the ABR, in response to the Amder and Lee article. So it was in Piro, and that came out, as far as I can tell, again, this is hard to, to I, I tried going back into the Wayback Machine to get more precise dates, but Maybe I can I can tee this down. I think I have it in my notes somewhere. But anyway, you know how journals work. So we had the, the in-press online uh, thing from Amder and Lee in March, and then the exams and all this stuff happened. So all of this is happening. The, the exams used to be taken in July. The scores would come out usually six weeks later. So this is all happening then, in August, early September. And so the in pro after the high failure rate came out, the... Head of, heads of the ABR wrote an editorial in response to Amdur and Lee. And the drifting slightly downward is, is if you've heard people quote the decline in resonant quality, or the, you know, it's always said with a smirk and just a sarcastic tone that that's where this comes from. This is here are snippets of that editorial and basically the head of the the ABR's leadership responding to that editorial and to concerns about the high failure rate.
2: In this issue of the journal, Drs. Amdur and Lee make several observations regarding the state of medical education and standardized assessment in general and the assessment instruments of the ABR in particular. Although we recognize their intent as experienced and committed educators, we disagree with their conclusions related to the qualifying, computer-based and certifying oral examinations administered by the ABR. Regrettably, we believe that the authors have developed their hypothesis based on flawed reasoning and personal observations, as they specifically indicate. We base our belief on several critical issues. The Angoff standard setting procedure used for determining the scoring standards of the ABR examinations, as alluded to but not described, is carried out annually for each examination instrument. This process is conducted by physicians actively practising in academic and private practice settings and working with trainees who will actually take the examinations. The essence of the Angoff standard setting procedure is to opine the number of individuals who would answer a specific question correctly, not the number who should answer it correctly. Every item, question, is judged individually on this basis, with no preordained intent for outcomes. Therefore, the scoring target moves in any given year, based on this judgment in relation to the difficulty of the unique set of items on a particular examination. The Angoff scores for individual items are then totaled to form an average percentage of questions that would be answered correctly for the entire examination. The final pass-fail score cut is thus a criterion-based reference, which makes it possible for all examinees to pass the examination if they meet or exceed the standard for a given set of questions. To support this element of their hypothesis, the authors refer to a manuscript by Becker et al. describing the process, policies, and background of ABR examinations, and interpret a statement regarding a responsibility to maintain the public trust as an ABR established policy regarding maintaining an approximate 10% failure rate. In fact, that publication makes no such linkage of the issues, and the only mention of an approximate 10% failure rate is a response to a hypothetical question posed by an outsider. The ABR has never set an arbitrary or norm-referenced passing standard for written or oral examinations and has no intention of doing so.
1: I really like having that read aloud to hear that as the response and the tone of it. And and it is, I I find it somewhat confusing. So as you can see, that's when I was trying to explain what the Angoff method was, that's what I was trying to summarize, and I'm still uh, just as confused as ever, but... Very interestingly, so one of the uh, arguments from the Amber and Lee editorial was basically that the obligation, the perception was that the ABR was under obligation to have a 10% failure rate. Because what is the point of having these certification exams if you have everyone passing? And they are, so when when in the Amber and Lee editorial, that citation was from a 2013 Red Journal paper responding to Kerf Huffles about that. So I'll talk on this at the end about what was going on in 2013 with the board exams. But so, you know, I, I, if you go and follow into that reference and what they're talking about, here is the relevant excerpt from the that paper.
2: According to the standards for educational and psychological testing, the level of performance required for passing a credentialing test should depend on the knowledge and skills necessary for acceptable performance in the occupation or profession and should not be adjusted to regulate the number or proportion of persons passing the test. The cut score should be determined by a careful analysis and judgment of acceptable performance. The ABR's standard setting process is the ANGOF method, the most widely used among certification and licensing examination sponsors. In this process, A group of experts drawn from a variety of backgrounds addresses each examination item in a systematic way to produce an estimate of the minimum score representing competence for safe practice. The ABR's policies also include statistical equating where possible to keep the level of competence required for passing equitable from one examination form to another. This complies with the best practice that alternate test forms should have comparable score scales so that scores can retain their meaning and assure that the standard for passing represents the same level of performance on all forms.
1: Just to very plainly state that now this is definitely me editorializing and injecting my own opinion, I find that a very circular argument. So what they're saying here is is there's this question, and this is again from 10 years ago. So before all the 2018 debacle issue there was a belief or you know, an open rumor that the ABR always adjusted the pass-fail to make sure that they had about a 10% failure rate. And that was as, again, to what's the point of an exam if 100% of people pass? And the ABR was saying, no, 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 you know, we don't do that. What we do is, and it's very flowery, complicated language, but they're basically saying that their process is intended to standardize the experience, the pass rates, to make sure that each successive exam is in line to be with a a similar sort of pass rate or is equitable with previous exams. The interesting thing about that, it's a circular argument. So sure, they don't have an outright policy saying we have to fail 10% of people every year. What they're saying is that we have to make sure each exam Is in line with previous years. So if in previous years every exam has a 10% failure rate, then by the transitive properties of standardization, that means that you're going to have a 10% failure rate. I don't know. I don't know if that's arguing in good faith. Again, these are very complicated. And I don't think there's, just to really be clear, I don't think anyone's a bad actor here. I think that these are very complicated sort of questions without clear answers. And everyone is, is doing their best and you're involving organizations. And I don't know who or what, I, I, don't, I don't think anyone is not putting their best foot forward, but sure, there's definitely not a 10% failure rate policy, but if there's on average a 10% failure rate in the policy is to standardize it, therefore there's a 10% policy, whatever. There's th- four main arguments. The ABR's leadership response to the Amber and Lee editorial after the failure rate um, was, so here is the fourth and final Um, part of their justification for why there was this abnormally high failure rate in 2018.
2: Generally available National Residency Match Program data suggests that during the past decade, regardless of a belief within the radiation oncology community, trends in the quality of residents accepted for training have been drifting slightly downward.
1: Obviously, that was quite a bombshell line to include, which caused quite a stir Uh, amongst those of us who residents at the time or before or since. Very interesting statement. So the one thing, and so now I'm going to again wander off into clear editorializing. I, I, at the time, wanted to write this as a letter to the editor, but at the time I was a resident and I could not get any faculty buy-in because they felt like the pressure was too hot. And I, I completely agree, obviously, the fact that I am Sitting here doing any sort of podcast let on this one shows what kind of personality I have and why I would even suggest such a thing in my, in my youth. I was exuberant to even ask anyone to do that. I, I, I don't blame them. I would not have written it either. Cause what people don't realize, I guess those of us who lived it did. But so for those of you who are more junior in your career there, this was, this was peak golden era radonk. So. We just all felt like we were lucky to have a seat at the table at all, and that caused a lot of these problems, but there was a culture of, of you did question these things, because if you did, you might get blacklisted and not get a job. And again, this was not, you know, for anyone who's listening, who's in medicine, I don't need to really spell this out, but these these are not like overt policies. These are not the things, it's just a how it is. and. It was very intense at the time and I'm sure even at a certain point. So for me, I'm now on the other end of it where I'm finished with my training, finished with my, I'm I'm board certified. So I I'm very lucky now where I can sit here and do these things and the power dynamic in medicine is not one where people in training have my same luxury. So anyway, this, that's quite, quite a statement. And I wanted to know what was the justification for that? Because really all signs at the time, that was the first time I think any of us had ever heard anyone claim that the radiation oncology, that the quality and the caliber of the people in radiation oncology was anything less than stellar. And again, this this is the golden era. And historically, for 20 years, Radonk had been so unbelievably competitive. And now we have this blip uh, of failure rates. And the response, the multi-pronged response was to include that, well, actually, it's not the ABR's fault. It's your fault for being of lower quality. If you go into that paper, if you go into the editorial and you Check their reference because there's a reference on that. It's number four in that paper. You see the link to the NRMP 2017 match data, and it is a it's a big report. You know, it's the standard NRMP. It's just a lot of dry stats and numbers and stuff. So I went into that report and I was like, man, I I swear I don't remember that anywhere in any of these things. Not that I read these things backwards and forth, but. You would think that if there is a way to to quantify quote-unquote quality or whatnot, like that would be notable. I searched throughout this entire document and could not find a single thing about resident quality. And for people who don't spend their evenings reading these reports, which should be everyone, basically quality is, is a really nebulous sort of statement or, or definition. And so I think Classically, because it's easy and humans are lazy, we like to define quality in medical students and whatnot by things like exam scores or medical school class scores, either clinical or preclinical, and you know then you can get into things like volunteer experience or whatever. You, you know we've all done these applications, but the NRMP match reports don't talk about any of that. It's really just talking about how many. USMD seniors applied, how many foreign medical grads applied, how many programs offered spots, you know, where were those programs, where did, how many applicants did someone have to, or did a program have to rank to match? And it's, I've gone backwards and forth in this 124 page document, and there's really no bright neon arrow blinking saying, this is quality, this, this, you can definitely use this as, as a surrogate for quality. And just to zoom out and use other resources at the time. So again, the, you know, I I, I don't have a perfect answer. I also agree that some of our traditional metrics of quality are are flawed and that there are things that we are measuring that do not actually represent what it takes to be a good physician, but whatever. I'm not getting into that for right now. You know, when you go into other resources that that editorial did not cite, and you try to study the trends of radiation oncology residency applicants and, and whatnot. So there's a 2015 Red Journal paper, and it looked at, you know, the classic measures of questionable validity, but the classic measures of radiation oncology applicants. And so they went from 2007 to 2014, which, again, is important because the class taking the 2018 red biophysics was the match class of 2014, but you know, every, every single metric increase. So you had the mean USMLE step one score went from 235 to 241. The mean number of abstracts, presentations, publications, blah, 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 went from 6.3 to 12.2. The percentage of AOA stayed relatively stable in the 24 to 35% range. And same with the percentage of the phd was about 21 to 23 and the percentage of people from top 40 medical schools was around 50% and compared to all again i'm not i don't i'm not here to make a comment on are those good measures or not i think there's that debate would spawn well three years of debate but basically those are the classic measures and for those classic measures compared to the other specialties in that same time period it was all higher and so that was what we had all in, at that time th- there wasn't a lot of these things but that was the general sense was that by the classic american medical school measures and metrics that radiation oncology was among the the highest of those classic measures and was therefore that was part of the reason why it was so competitive and so to hear anything Contrary to that was surprising, and uh, was was unexpected. We'll put it like that. So, returning to the 2017 match report that the editorial cited, it's uh, I spent a long time going back and forth trying to figure out what this statement was based on. The only thing that you can find, and I'm pretty sure that this is what they were referencing, but the only thing that you can find is on page 45 there is table 17 and let's see what what is what is table 17
2: table 17 displays by specialty the average number of ranked applicants needed to fill each position within programs only programs that filled all of their positions are included in the calculations although this measure is affected by such factors as the number and geographic distribution of programs as well as the number of applicants ranked by the programs, it is a rough measure of specialty competitiveness.
1: So unless there's a secret hidden resident quality graph in here that I can't find in the PDF that was linked in that editorial, this is this is what they're talking about. And I, as always, encourage anyone to go download and take a look at these things themselves. Table 17 here, you have from 2013 to 2017 that applicant per spot which the nrmp itself admits is not a great measure and it's funny because the drawbacks they list are exactly what radonk is to a t small geographic variation like you know the the argument i would make is that should radonk or specialties as small even be included in this measure and but that's a debate for other people and not me So assuming this Table 17 is the best metric or surrogate metric for quality, you can take a look. And at the time, so that was referencing the 2017 report, and obviously it has been five years, so I have additional data from them. But so there's two kind of measures in any of these things, because Radonk is one of the ones that has the, you know, often most of the programs don't have an integrated intern year, so you have to have a separate match. So it's important to separate out the PGY-1 and the PGY-2. So in our case with radiation oncology, if it's listed in the PGY-1 data, that means it's a program that has an integrated intern year, and uh, which is the minority of programs. So the majority of programs are listed in the PGY-2 year. So lo- looking at this table, which is looking at how many applicants a program needed to rank to fill, and again, only programs that filled everything. So this is excluding any programs that didn't match even one spot from in 2013. For PGY 1, meaning the, the minority of the integrated programs, we have 5.3, then 2014 at 7.7, 7.8, 7.3, and 4.5. So it goes from 5 to 8, basically, in the integrated program spots. And if you take and, and think about what this is, you would assume that if it's the number of applicants a program needs to rank to fill, that a... Program that is more desirable has to rank fewer applicants, right? So, the you're making a lot of assumptions that all right, there's these programs are going to be universally ranked by applicants by whatever metric. So, in our case, we always talk about the big three. You've got Harvard, Anderson, Kettering, right? And so you would assume that those three programs have to rank fewer people to fill than a less desirable specialty. And, you know, immediately there's a lot of apparent flaws with that sort of assumption, but whatever. So the bigger number means that a program had to rank more people to fill, which means it's less competitive. You know, it's quite the leap to say that that's a a marker of quality. But so you do see that trend in this PGY1 data. So by going from five in 2013 to Eight in 2015, and then back down to 4.5 in 2017. It's it's a bell shaped curve, but arguably, it it, you know it it doesn't really make much sense because there's no real trend there. It's it's just like a curve, and that's a pretty big fluctuation in that time period. But it's the 20 you know it's the PGY1 data. So looking at the PGY2 data, which is the majority of the program, going from 2013 to 2017, we go from 5.8. 4.9, 5.2, 5.4, 4.9, 5.2, 5.4, and 5.7. So, because there's many more of those programs, that's why the data is much more solid. There, there is no, there is no trend there. Uh, a couple big points about that is that again, the, the class that took the 2018 round biophysics was the match class of 2014, and that was 4.9. That was the by this measure the the most competitive class year in that five year span. But regardless, it basically all hovered around, you know, 4.9 to 5.8. It was, you, you you can't make inferences from that. But now in knowing what sort of happened, so again, starting around the 2019-ish match, we all know that radiation oncology really plummeted in um, quality. So if we take the most recent match data, which goes from 2018 to 2022, looking at the PGI one it goes 6.1, 3.4, 6.1, 13.3 that tells y'all you, you really need to know about the validity of this sort of measure for such a small so that's a small specialty with a small portion of the specialty of PGY1 positions in Radon. but so that's going from 6.1 to 13.3 all right there's a trend but looking at the PGY2 data we go from 5.9 in 2018 6.7 6 10 9.2 so th- that's the trend you know that is if you're going to take this and infer quality. The, I, I think it's pretty ar- clear to me, at least, that in that five year period that is cited, the quality was pretty stable if you're going to use this, which I don't think you should. And then you can see, because we can actually compare of what would happen if a specialty wasn't competitive, what happens to those numbers. And again, I, I don't think that you can then say, so those, those are the huge kind of assumptions about this statement. If you're saying the quality of residence is drifting downwards and you're citing this paper, so assumption one is that this table seventeen is a measure of quality of the residence. Cause you know, what it is is one, it's a table which excludes programs that don't completely match. So right there, you're that's it, that's an interesting metric that you're taking out that could help us. So if you have a program that's offering two spots and they only fill one, then they're automatically excluded from that. But so you're assuming that in a small specialty like Radonk with a lot of geographic sort of, you know, influence, that this table has any relevance of all to radiation ecology. Assumption two is that even if you say that this table is a good measure for Radonk, the competitiveness of a specialty is a surrogate endpoint for quality of the applicants. And there's kind of two multiple issues with that one how are you defining quality is it and then if you're assuming the quality is the classic sort of medicine measures of board scores and whatnot all the other data of that era pointed to the exact opposite and then assumption three and this is my assumption here looking at this i think the the only way if you're using table 17 to make a, a statement about the trend of applicants drifting downward is looking at the PGY one data, and I, I it's like less than less than twenty programs have an integrated slot. I think it's like a dozen. I, I it might have it was really low when I did. it. I'd have to go back and look. But so you assume that there's a hundred programs, maybe ten of them are offering these integrated spots, and so you can't look at the PGY one data. You have to look at the PGY two data. So the PGY two data not only is pretty tight, but the twenty fourteen class is also the most it's the lowest number. It's the most competitive, and So those are huge logical leaps. Now, again, I I could be wrong and maybe it wasn't this table, but in, in all of this cited NRMP report, this is the only table that could be used and and none of the other data, all the other data is just talking about, unless you want to assume that there's fewer, the, the only other thing I could come up with is that as the residency spots had increased, that means, you know, with more spots available, that each spot therefore became less competitive because the resource is less scarce. That's the only other thing you could draw from that. But I think that's also pretty spurious. And yeah, that, 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 that statement is, that's what the citation shows. I don't know. Maybe, I, I hope I'm wrong about that because there's a lot of logical leaps because that particular line, you know, for, for people listening who live this with me and in terms of being around in this time period, this, this singular sort of line this, this, and and I, I would, I'll talk with Dr. Fields and, and maybe we can talk about this further, but, you know, if, if the belief is that the 2018 ABR exam failure rates is the catalyst for, for how come we're the least competitive specialty in all of medicine now, I would take it one step further and say that this is the knife's edge that. This line of the trend quality of applicants was drifting downwards. I know that that was the, the, the dagger's edge. That, that one really hit hard to a lot of people. And I didn't even, you know, this, this, I hadn't was affected by this. I didn't take rad biophysics that year, and it hurt me. And so then to actually dig into that and see what that line is based on, I am left, and again, I am really editorializing now, I am left to conclude that a erroneous assumption or an erroneous interpretation of a table in an NRMP report destroyed the competitiveness of radiation oncology. I, you know, that's obviously a very concise and way to put it, but I it, again if someone would like to correct my interpretation of that, please. Go. It's the PRO editorial. Well, I'm intentionally not saying author's names here because I don't want that smoke. But you know, go find the editorial, look at the reference, go look at the report. If, if I'm wrong, please tell me, because this is how I'm left to re- interpret this. But that is um that is the quality. So we've got the editorial, the online impress editorial saying. What's going on with these board exams? All of our residents are objectively getting more competitive as it measures by your assembly scores, and the pass rate stays the same. And then you have this huge failure rate, and then you have the officials at the ABR responding to the failure rate into that editorial saying, "No, this is not. It's not a us problem. It's not an us problem. It's a you problem." And citing the quality of residence is drifting downwards and setting. And so there's a lot of a lot of turmoil, a lot of anger. You have the ABR that or sorry, the arrow writes that letter on behalf of the residents. And there's a lot of solutions that were proposed. So a lot of people wanted to have more transparency or in that kind of having a, a more a deeper explanation like a recount almost you had some people wanting to have a mid-year retake because again with with how crazy radonk is for our board certifications th- this really throws things off when you've got four exams that span three years that last into being an attending you know so a lot of people were asking for a, a mid-year retake and the Officials at the ABR sent a letter to program directors addressing some of these requests or these concerns. And here's an excerpt.
2: The variance from the average passing standards over five years for the biology passing standard is exactly the same as the average over the past five years. We are aware that the physics and biology pass rates are below those attained on the clinical radiation oncology exam and suggest that the lower scores in physics and biology, in contrast to clinical, may be multifactorial. However, the ABR exam delivery process has been unchanged and all scores are verified multiple times prior to publication. One factor in the lower physics and radiobiology scores may be a lack of clarity regarding up-to-date reference study sources and heterogeneity of teaching standards across programmes. We are working with our committee chairs to develop a more useful study and reference guide for trainees and are encouraging stakeholders in the academic radiation oncology community to create greater consensus regarding curriculum content and teaching methodologies. The ABR stands ready to work with stakeholders to assure that trainees are receiving the optimum preparation for their future careers and that we are continuing to appropriately assess their understanding of that material. We appreciate your support in this regard.
1: It was preordained that the ABR was not going to budge on this one, but that one really put the nail in the coffin. And, you know, whether or not the proposed solutions had merit, the ABR opted to stick to their guns and just said, Them, them's the brakes and good luck next year. One of the interesting things that spawned a lot of, obviously, consequences in general, but Arrow the following year did a survey on this in the 2019 test takers and just it is a, kind of response to quality and studying and all these other things that were said so here's a piece of that paper
2: first time examinees in 2019 reported studying a substantial amount for the ic examinations with the average resident dedicating 160 hours in the 12 weeks immediately prior to the examination date although the sudden increase in the percentage of failures in 2018 may have led to a corresponding increase in time spent studying for 2019 These figures are reflective of the observations published by Lee and Amdur that radiation oncology residents spend months neglecting clinical or academic work so that they can spend more time preparing for their certification examinations. Indeed, approximately 70% of residents endorse relying upon time otherwise allocated for research, elective rotations, or vacation to accommodate this degree of preparation and likely contributes to the appreciable reported negative effect of examination preparation on clinical development, research productivity and wellness outcomes. In a recent survey to assess burnout in US radiation oncology training programs, 33.1% of radiation oncology residents demonstrated high levels of symptoms consistent with burnout, with significantly increased risk among residents who reported poor work-life balance. In the present survey, 62.4% and 56.7% of residents reported that examination preparation had a moderate or significant negative effect on their mental health and family life, respectively. These rates were significantly higher among residents within the class of 2019 who reported needing to retake either the MP or RCB examinations in 2019 with 91.7% and 70.8% of these residents reporting that retaking these examinations negatively impacted their mental health and family life. For those assessing strategies to mitigate burnout among radiation oncology trainees and junior faculty, reevaluation of the board certification process may be a high-impact approach, given that the American Medical Association states that three of the four most important factors driving burnout among physicians – include a sense of loss of control, misalignment of values between providers and leaders, and increased time pressure.
1: My personal experience with the RAD biophysics was somewhat representative of that, except as I detailed on one of the episodes a long time ago, I was part of the unfortunate group that got caught up in the COVID experience. So I took all three of these in a four-month period, and I had to drive to Massachusetts and do this stuff. It, trying to extract all that out, I would I would say that 160 hours is at least probably less than what I personally did, but that's a meat problem. But you know, it it's all I can say is that I felt like the survey from Arrow was was accurate. And sort of circle back on this, because with that 2013 paper of the ten uh, percent failure rate, why why would you even have such a paper? And people forget or might not know about what happened with the ABR back in 2012. So in 2012, there was a story that was published by CNN on cheating in board certification exams by radiologists. This is a diagnostic radiologist. So here is the intro to that report.
2: For years, doctors around the country taking an exam to become board certified in radiology have cheated by memorizing test questions, creating sophisticated banks of what are known as recalls, a CNN investigation has found. The recall exams are meticulously compiled by radiology residents, who write down the questions after taking the test, in radiology programs around the country, including some of the most prestigious programs in the US. It's been going on a long time, I know, but I can't give you a date, said Dr. Gary Becker, Executive Director of the American Board of Radiology, ABR, which oversees the exam that certifies radiologists. Asked if this were considered cheating, Becker told CNN, We would call it cheating, and our exam security policy would call it cheating, yes. Radiology residents must sign a document agreeing not to share test material, but a CNN investigation shows the document is widely ignored. Dozens of radiology residents interviewed by CNN said that they promised, before taking the written test, to memorise certain questions, and write them down immediately after the test along with fellow residents.
1: I was in med school when this happened and had friends who were either starting a radiology residency or were in it, and, I, and this was, I remember this being such a big deal. I had forgotten all about this until the 2018 issue happened, and so I've gone back, as is my nature, and read through a lot of the things that were written around this time. My favorite one being the one of these... Um, retired radiology people who volunteered with the abr and was a board examiner it's just amazing editorial that they wrote And
2: here's here's one of my favorite pieces of it given the added costs of an oral examination why did the abr continue these examinations for decades after other boards had discontinued them one possible explanation is that an oral examination is inherently more psychologically traumatic than a written examination and therefore provides added incentive for residents to study and learn. Until recently, it also provided examiners an opportunity to teach. On my first day as an oral examiner in 1985, I spent the morning observing Jack Edikon, a trustee of the board, examine candidates. He made it clear that he viewed this as an opportunity to educate the candidates and perhaps even our entire specialty. To this end, He kept a group of unusual personal cases that he showed to those exceptional candidates who had already passed his musculoskeletal section of the examination. He pointed out to me and other novice examiners that the resident network would pass along these cases, and eventually most candidates would recognise that entity. I emulated Dr. Dyken for as long as examiners were permitted to show a few of our own cases, I particularly remember an example of calcific tendinitis of the longus coli. No candidate got the answer to that case the first year I showed it. But within three years, almost every candidate knew the answer, and I had the satisfaction of knowing, or at least thinking, that in a very small way I had added to the knowledge base of a generation of young radiologists. This anecdote suggests that that recall cheating has been around a very long time.
1: To fully discuss that passage, is far beyond the scope of this. And yes, they were at uh, right an hour here, which was not my intent, but the story ended up being bigger to tell than I anticipated. Perhaps I'll explore that at a different time, but it's uh, something to think about. I included it here for a reason, something to think about. But, you know, in 2012, the story broke and the ABR completely revamped the diagnostic radiology exam system. So I think this was the year they did away with orals or where they switched to what is now called the core exam. Even I don't have limitless time to know the intricacies of of a different specialties exam system, so I won't go into that. But, you know, that was 2012. That was part of what prompted the 2013 paper in the Red Journal. And then we had our issue, you know, the 2018 failures, six years after all this. Very interestingly, diagnostic radiology in 2019 had a similar sort of explosion. So they had a... 16% failure rate of their core exam, which is like a, a, as the name suggests, that's not broken up anymore. It's this one big, I think diagnostic has two big exams. So the core exam is the first one. And, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but 2019, there was a whole similar sort of explosion in diagnostic radiology about their, their exams and this very high uh, failure rate. And I believe I'd have to look it up, but I believe that the ABR on that side chose to sent out an email about the high scores, but like people didn't have their scores yet. They did something in an interesting way that caused a lot of anxiety. And you know, I'm gonna put my tinfoil hat on here because if you look at the diagnostic radiology part of it in the core exam, in 2016 they had a 91.1% pass rate. 2017 it was 93.5. 2018 it was down to 862 and then 2019 it was 84%. It's interesting to note that the Amder and Lee editorial came out in the spring of 2018 prior to the written examinations were being disseminated. They were stating that they thought the exams had gotten too hard, and they cited their reasoning then the 2018 debacle happened and there is the highest failure rate ever. And simultaneously, there was this really high failure rate of the ABR diagnostic core exam. Now, it because I'm not in that world, I don't recall if... That caused a similar level of stirring, I suspect because this was a newer exam. So part of the radiation oncology thing was that this sequence has been unchanged for a hundred years. It's not that much, but I one time tried to figure out exactly when this four exam sequence started and forever. You know, because when we switched to, so we were board certified in therapeutic radiology up until 1996, I believe. And then, because there was a time, people forget or don't know this, but. Radiation oncology used to be a mix of three years and four year specialties. And the original job market concerns in the 90s, part of the solution to that was to mandate a fourth year. That's where a lot of our elective time comes from. And then some other things changed around 1996, 1997. But so we've been basically having this four exam system for as long as anyone currently in the specialty has been around. Radiology, diagnostic radiology, after that issue, they switched their exams all the way up. So I don't think the 2018 failure rate was as seismic just simply because that version of their exam was only five or six years old at that point. But certainly by the 2019, having this 16% failure rate was, I I remembered, and that part, I think I was on Twitter at that point too, so I saw it a lot. I'm going to put the disclaimer out that this is incredibly tinfoil hat, and it's, (laughs) just to quote some pop media people, uh, I'm just asking questions, I'm just asking questions, but it did not escape my notice that the PRO, Amdur and Lee editorial, expressing concern that the ABR board examinations for radiation oncology had become significantly more difficult as based on step one scores, came out in March of 2018, or at least came out online in March 2018. And then the summer came for rat biophysics, and there was unusually high failure rates simultaneously over in diagnostic radiology. In their core exam, there was an 86% pass rate, so 14% failure. And then in 2019, there was an 84% pass rate or 16% failure rate. And, you know, again, I I really distinctly remember that. It, It caused a lot of issue Conversely, over on our side of things, I think there, there was like a 99% pass rate, but like I was saying, that put the fear of God into all of us, and people just, I i i remember. I, I lived, you know, I was twenty-twenty when I took it, but I, re- I remember how much effort was dedicated into this, because, you know, we were basically, everyone failed, and then we were told it was our fault, And but on radiology, I don't think there was as big of an explosion. So, it is very coincidental to me that in a singular organization that had egg on their faces, to put it mildly, from 2012, that on both arms of their main certifying experience of diagnostic and radiation oncology, that they had a sudden decrease in pass rates and that this editorial came out in advance saying, hey, maybe these are too hard. You know, it could just be coincidental, but I, I just want to put it out there because I don't know. I, I think people are still kind of gun shy to talk about this. And what I think people forget is that at the end, we uh, there's this nameless facelessness to an institution and an organization. And I'm always reminded of Simone's maxims and Which we all like to quote. For those aren't familiar, Google Simone's maxims from 1999, and an institution cannot love you back. But you know, we like to think that these things are not vulnerable to biases or sway or whatnot, or they're infallible. And ultimately, it can boil down to just the decisions of a few individuals can really influence this for a lot of people. But I think it's conceivable that it really just takes the actions of, of one or two people to really influence things. And we see this every day, really. You know, if you think about how you think about how you're listening to me right now and the the reach that this has compared to if I was doing this 20 years ago or the world has changed so rapidly that it's really easy for and maybe it's always been easy what am I talking about you know there's a there's always been ways that just a few dedicated individuals can really bend the world to their will and you know That that kinda to to summarize all this, because I think Dr. Fields' point is is a good one. I don't think it's the whole story. So to be clear, I personally feel like in terms of if the question is why are we the least competitive specialty in medicine right now, I don't think the whole answer is the twenty eighteen high failure rates from the ABR board exams. I think it's definitely the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, I will sometimes refer to it as the golden bubble of radiation oncology and Similar to just what we're seeing now with hyperinflation and rates and all these things. There's, there's bubbles. It's, it's an economy. And people just think that means money at, of countries and there's an economy of everything, of attention, of culture, of you know clout and all these things. But there is a lot of things going on beneath the surface as there are for any medical specialty. So that's what people need to remember is that radiation oncology is not special. The, the problem with radiation oncology is that by being so small, outliers can have an outsized effect. And if you got especially like internal medicine, where you've got one or two kind of like problems or, or a lot of people are, or whatnot, you know it it washes out the noise gets washed out in the signal. Where am I going with all this what is What is the point of doing this? And so one, I really do think it's very important that we all have the same information, the same understanding. And if someone disagrees with anything I've said here, I'd love to hear it. So I've basically just tried to summarize. If I was a total novice to radiation oncology and was trying to learn about the field and somebody said to me, well, it was all going great until the ABR debacle of 2018, your average med student's is not going to know what that is. And I'm not even sure. This is a long story, obviously. I just happen to be in the right places at the right time and obviously have a very unusual interest in all this. I know what that means. People like Dr. Fields knows what that means, but I wanted to make sure that we had an oral history now. I, please, somebody should correct me if anything I've said here is wrong. Obviously, some of this is my opinion and is not factual, but the, the fact of it is that we have an unusual series of board exams compared to other specialties. In 2018, there was an abnormally high failure rate in the clinical, or not the clinical, but the RAD Biophysics written so, we had an average pass rate for clinical written, an average pass rate for orals, but a very high failure rate for the written rad biophysics. And the response of the ABR was to say, it's not us, it's you. And that, then, if you look to the graphs of the specialty, you start to see if you want to hang about a, a, a downward trend, the competitiveness of radiation oncology after 2018 was at the downward trend. There's a lot of other factors that would be another 10 hours of, of talking. Cause then you get into what affected COVID have and, and all this other stuff. We'll say that for another time, but that is the ABR debacle. Now, I, I think tensions have been high over the last couple of weeks. And I guess tensions are always high in this if you're a healthcare worker in America in 2023, but. We had the workforce drop and then we had the match last week and we had the worst. We we went again for lowest match rate. We had 81%. And it's hard to say anything other than we are at rock bottom by certain metrics. You know, we we had a meteoric fall from grace essentially. And we went from being one of the most competitive non-surgical specialties in medicine to, to the literal worst. And it is easy to get discouraged about that. My complaint, I have a lot of complaints, obviously, my biggest complaint is actually that people wrap their identity and their egos up in their job. And that we tell ourselves a story that if somebody asks you, what do you do? Most of us would say, I'm a doctor. And then you'd go on to other things. Whatever you answer first, no, you might not say that out loud, but when I say, What do you do? The first thing that pops up is, I'm a doctor or I'm a, you know, I'm a med student or whatever. I would argue that's not healthy and that's not good. And that a lot of the kicking and screaming and denying the data regarding the workforce and all these other things is in large part due to, it feels like an attack on us. By saying we are the least competitive specialty in all of medicine, people are internalizing, I am the least competitive. I am not good. And that is not true. And I think the more people can separate themselves and treat these things like they would, talking about PSA and when do we get a PSMA PET? I go on and I everyone I know, uh, you know, just incredibly smart, regardless of whatever your Step One score was, incredibly smart, thoughtful human beings that have these intricate debates about evidence and what we should do and when. And they turn their brains off when we have this conversation. And I really just the. The one thing I want people to really think about is redefining who you are and feeling good about how well you take care of patients or yourself or family members independent of what the specialty is doing. And I know this seems very preachy, but I've I've had conversations with people about this. And I will never forget talking with a junior resident once when this was, as we were crashing, quote unquote. And this, this person really, you know, they confided in me that they really were hurt by our fall from grace and that they took a lot of pride, as it were, in being a part of this specialty that was so hard to get into. And that is a natural human tendency. That is just how we are wired. And that's, that's branding, that's reputation. And that is a shortcut because humans are lazy. And so we have all these mental heuristics and you know, that's, that for, for me, that was, that's my favorite part about doing residency at Yale is I can just say, oh, I went to Yale and that shortcuts a lot of things. You know, if I say that, that, that kind of communicates something right or wrong it communicates something. And that is what we do for everything. So it used to be 10 years ago, I'm a radiation oncologist, very different than today. And, but when I see what is happening right now, I have often been accused of being pessimistic. And I, I, I totally understand I you know, nihilism, pessimism, whatever, whatever is, whatever, but I uh, actually, honestly, sincerely feel the opposite. I have never felt more optimistic than I do right now about radiation oncology. And the reason being that five, ten years ago, the culture was so oppressive. Again, it was just the, the seat at the table. We were happy to just be here. That, that inertia, that fear, that really gave a lot of control to a few people, and we were afraid to speak out, and it was not good. But... Sure, you know, and it's just like anything else, you gotta hit rock bottom. So we've, we're at rock bottom in terms of that specifically as it pertains to medical student interest in our specialty and the match and all that. There's nothing about, I don't think we're at rock bottom for, for a, maybe for CMS reimbursement. But, you know, so I look around now and I see people who are early to mid-career who are in key places doing their best. And so the workforce is a good example. I obviously vehemently disagree with the conclusions of the workforce task force and have written letters to the editor. And, but major things about that is that they tried, they did it. I, I cannot understate how amazing that is, that I don't agree with the conclusions. The fact that there were conclusions to disagree with is great. And the people that are on that task force are great. And I've had Lots of phone calls with Dr. Shah and we're talking about a lot of things and you know, that that means more than whatever the conclusions were. It means that people are openly acknowledging issues and trying to do something about it. And I see people like Doctor Emma Field. Now, obviously so Emma Fields was at VCU when I was at VCU, and I guess arguably the, the on the science side I had other mentors, but I guess I would say Dr. Fields was my first like clinical mentor. I obviously have tremendous respect for her, and I see her getting on accelerators and talking about things, and is on part of the workforce task force, and you know I I think that's that's great, and that sincerely, and this is going to take a long time, and it's not going to be tomorrow, and I would still. Say if you're a med student, I would I would look elsewhere. But, but. I think that. People should take heart and and you know there's, and what we're doing right now. There's no such thing as failure. There's feedback. So yeah, things like the workforce analogy, the workforce study was not good, the conclusions, but everything else about it was good, and. There's, the ABR debacle. The reason the ABR debacle to call it that, was such a big deal, was the response to it. To publish an editorial saying that the resident quality is decreased and that's why the failure, that was, that was not the response that should have gone out. And because let's say my tinfoil hat thing is true, let's say the ABR was like, we need to show the public or for whatever reason, we think this is too easy. We need to have, fail more kids. And if they I, I think, well, obviously, they would have spun us off in a different direction. But if they had said, yeah, you know what, we did do that. We did turn the volume up a little bit and we hear you and, you know, we're not going to do it again or whatever. There, there was a lot of other ways to respond to that. If that was true, I'm not saying that was true, but the way they responded was the probable almost the worst way to do it, where they kept the process hidden, they put blame on the residents themselves. If anything, they should, you know, they're going to blame people. I would have said the residencies, not the actual residents. And I think that was a real turning point and that was our rock bottom. But now I look around and and I just, I'm optimistic. I think it's going to take a long time. I am very concerned about oversupply. I do think that that is going to be a problem. I think right now The difference between climate and weather. And I do think that because the increased retirements that we are seeing an artificial sort of reprieve from the job market issues. And I am very concerned about that, assuming nothing changes. Now, this is is the key message is that none of us can see the future. So when people like me sit out here and say, oh, oversupply or, or whatnot, I cannot see the future. If I could, I would be living a very different life. And we don't know what's around the corner. In the people, and this will be a future episode, in the 90s, when people say the skies are always falling or radiation ecology, in the 90s, there was higher concern about the job market. Very interesting story about everything that went on back then. Nobody predicted that IMRT was going to come around and it was artificially going to, buoy the specialty for another decade, decade and a half. And nobody saw that. Maybe a few people sitting in New York City did, but I don't know what's around the corner. I don't know what's coming around in five years. The one thing I do know is that we are in a unique point in history with so many things change and really mad about this in one sense, because I don't want to be an early career physician living through history. I wanna, I want to just exist sometimes. But I think with the pandemic with everything that we've had to adapt and are still adapting to, very importantly with changes in technology. So if you think about the NCCN guidelines were only invented in 1996 and they've 20-fold increased in complexity and knowledge in general has increased in complexity to an unreal amount. And then recently we're looking at deep learning and neural networks and AI and what's been released recently with AI, envisioning what is going to, what is what is the meaning of, of these sorts of exams? Part of the testing for things like GPT-3 and 4 and chat GPT and those things is they pass medical exams. And so then the question becomes, you know, if a machine can, can pass these exams value, you know, is this really what we want to be testing each other on? And for anyone who doesn't pay attention to that, which I don't I don't know how in our field you you don't, but you know from from day one, this podcast has I've, I've used an artificial platform, um, an A- an AI editor. These transcriptions that that is reading that's been throughout this that's that's AI. That's those aren't people. It's AI. The artwork on on this podcast for the season one and two it is this all AI, and we all do AI auto contouring. And the point, if I say it one more time, I'm going to slap myself. But the point being now is the time for us to evaluate these exams and change is hard and but only when we've bottomed out and only when there's so much struggle that's that's when we can really make the changes that we should make and and really do what's best for the future i really don't want to be living in that period i want to i want to be at the end of that where i say oh i'm so glad those people did those crazy things 20 years ago but I guess we don't get that luxury, so here we are. The Chinese parable that I really like, or proverb, proverb, whatever it is. And we'll leave, we'll leave you with this, and this is way longer than I thought, and I apologize, and future ones will be shorter. But I hope that people start to feel as optimistic as I do and start to apply the same intense level of critical thought and analysis to the data as a, about our workforce and our specialty as they do about breast fractionation schemes and i will leave you with my favorite way to think about my life and everyone else's life too
0: once upon a time there was an old farmer who had worked his crops for many years one day his horse ran away upon hearing the news his neighbors came to visit such bad luck they said sympathetically you must be so sad we'll see the farmer replied The next morning the horse returned, bringing with it two other wild horses. How wonderful, the neighbors exclaimed. Not only did your horse return, but you received two more. What great fortune you have. We'll see, answered the farmer. The following day his son tried to ride one of the untamed horses, was thrown and broke his leg. The neighbors again came to offer their sympathy on his misfortune. Now your son cannot help you with your farming, they said. What terrible luck you have. We'll see, replied the old farmer. The following week, military officials came to the village to conscript young men into the army. Seeing that the son's leg was broken, they passed him by. The neighbors congratulated the farmer on how well things had turned out. Such great news! You must be so happy! The man smiled to himself and said once again, We'll see. This has been a Photon Media production. Don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to us. Be well and be mod